Welcome to Verity. I'm your host, Felicia Masonheimer, an author, speaker, and Bible teacher. This podcast will help you embrace the history and depth of the Christian faith, ask questions, seek answers, and devote yourself to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. You don't have to settle for watered-down Christian teaching. And if you're ready to go deeper, God is just as ready to take you there. This is Verity, where every woman is a theologian. Today's episode may be a little bit longer than usual. It's also a rather raw episode, and we will be talking about sex and sexuality. So if you have little ears and you don't want them to be hearing some of this, you might want to put earbuds in. But I know that this conversation is going to be freeing and helpful for many of you. And even if you have never struggled with sexual sin or addiction, I am sure that there is someone in your life who has. And hopefully the information in this episode and the encouragement that I share will equip you and help you to disciple other women and men who need this encouragement and a biblical approach to a broken sexuality. So for this episode, we will be talking about the concepts in chapter eight of Stop Calling Me Beautiful. This chapter is called Used Goods, Redeeming a Broken Sexuality. So my story with sexuality in general began when I was 12. When I was 12, this was before Instagram discover page, before internet porn was even a huge thing would have been back as computers were still those giant clunky things that sat on desks. And I was growing up in a wonderful Christian home with parents who were doing their very best to raise us in the truth. But at 12, I had not yet had a sex talk with my parents and I was the oldest. So I think perhaps they were still figuring out um, how to do that, when to talk to their kids about these things and didn't know and couldn't know what I would be exposed to, especially in an age so different than the one we live in now. And so at 12, um, I didn't really know what sex was at all. And I wasn't in an environment where I would have heard too much about it or read about it. It was all pretty new. So on this particular day, we were garage sailing, my mom and my siblings and I, and I, of course, loving to read, went back to a corner while my mom was shopping and found a book that didn't have a cover. And I thought maybe it was a boxcar children or something. And so I opened it up just in the middle to see what it was. It ended up being a Harlequin erotic novel. And I opened it up to a sex scene. And of course, being a kid, not knowing what it was, I was curious and wanted to know more, wanted to know what what was going on and understand it. But at the same time, I was filled with such shame and fear that I would be caught because I knew something was wrong with what I was reading. Something wasn't right. And it wasn't even the bodies or the act. It was just how it was described. And yet the curiosity got the best of me. And so I started trying to find these books at other garage sales, trying to find them in the library or at people's houses when I was visiting so that I could piece together a better understanding of what this was and fulfill this curiosity. Around this time, I began struggling with how to understand 
sex and sexuality, not wanting to talk to my parents about it because I was so ashamed of how I discovered it and what I had read, and also struggling with self-pleasure as a child who didn't really even know what it was, but knowing at the same time that something was wrong. And so I struggled like this in secret, slowly gathering information and understanding more and more of what was being said in these books until I was in my 20s. So it was a decade-long struggle that I walked through with sexual sin and addiction to erotica. So that book on that garage sale opened a door to years of sexual fantasy and addiction. I went through cycles of anger, depression, apathy, some victory, but each of these cycles made me more desperate to get free from this bondage, and each failure sent me spiraling into a crisis. I kept asking questions like, am I even saved if I keep sinning? Did I repent the last time I repented? I thought I did. I thought I was genuinely repentant. Like, why am I still struggling with this? Um, Will God still love me if I'm clearly scorning his grace because I did this again? And interestingly, a lot of these questions that I asked are very deep theological questions, but they were also very relevant to my daily life and my mental and emotional struggle with my own weakness. During this whole time of my struggle, I was also in a group for young women dedicated to purity. Ironic, I know. I felt the weight of that irony. I felt the full weight of my own hypocrisy. And I think a lot of why I struggled as much as I did was because I was constantly being exposed to these outward actions of purity, wearing a purity ring. I didn't date in high school. I didn't have the opportunity to sleep with a boyfriend or even kiss a boyfriend. And yet here I was still sinning sexually in a way that was exactly the same as a girl who was sleeping with her boyfriend because the heart of it was the same. I craved this information. I wanted to read these books and I enjoyed it while I did it, but I knew something was so wrong and that it grieved the heart of God and it grieved me and it left me in turmoil. And so I lived for a long time in this place wondering What does this mean? What does it look like to be free from this? Can you actually ever be free from this? I am not alone in this history, in this struggle. According to multiple surveys, 20 to 50% of women have actively used porn individually or in a relationship. Just as many are addicted to masturbation, like I was, or are engaging in sexual relationships with their boyfriends. This is not just in the culture. And the numbers would be higher in the culture. This is even in the church. And to many of you who are listening to this episode today, these are women who know Jesus and even who know him personally, just like I did. So where is the disconnect? Why are we not finding victory over broken sexuality? Now, there will be some crossover in this episode between this one, this topic, and our legalism episode, because the conversation around sexuality is very closely tied to the conversation around legalism. A lot of what we see taught on sexuality from the progressive and liberal Christians of this day and age is a response to legalistic sexuality. And so I want to mention this briefly. I think a lot of people would say that the shame I felt over 
reading erotica and engaging in self-pleasure was simply the shame of being in a Christian home or being in a home where my parents put me in this this youth group for girls. And that is not why I felt shame. It was not because of the group that I was in. I saw through any legalistic things that were in the group. I saw them for what they were because my parents were actively discipling me. And beyond that group, when I did start dating, when I did start living outside of that world, I continued to to feel shame over this because of what I saw in the word of God regarding his intent for my sexuality, because I saw what it was doing to my emotions. My husband and I today, six years married, he also has a sexual history that uh, I won't get into today, but my husband and I today have a healthy and wonderful sexual relationship that is completely redeemed and healed by God. But that happened not because I reacted against any legalism I experienced and suddenly became, quote unquote, sex positive. The reality is that the Bible is the most sex positive book that exists when you understand it rightly. And there, there isn't this false dichotomy between people who hold a biblical sexual ethic and people who are sex positive, who believe that sex is awesome and wonderful and exciting and healthy and that you should be able to talk about it. These aren't two opposite camps. They aren't polar ends of a spectrum. The Bible and biblical Christian values should result in sex positivity when you're holding the the marriage bed in honor, as Hebrews says, giving it the dignity that it's worth. And so when I'm recording this episode, it's about three or four days after the Super Bowl halftime show and all of the hullabaloo about that. And one of the things that I have noticed as I've watched what people are saying online is there's a lot of talk about how Christians who didn't like it are just repressed or they don't understand their own sexuality and that women should be able to showcase their sexuality. That's one of the arguments. The other argument is that pole dancing isn't sexual at all, but we live in a world, I live in a world where there's common sense. So we'll just stick with the original argument, which is women should be able to showcase their sexuality. I am all for women and men, but women seem to struggle with this more, especially if they're coming out of legalism, truly understanding God's design for their sexuality, for embracing that God designed you this way. This is beautiful and good and wonderful, but you don't get to take that out of its appropriate context. You don't get to take it out of the boundaries. God's boundaries are our freedom because they are healthy for us. They result in our glorification And so when we talk about sex, we have to remember that. We don't get to just take the bounds off and say, this is sex positive. Anything goes. You can do what you do in a bedroom on a stage. That's not what we're talking about here. Sex positive still has biblical boundaries. And I want to be sure that that's clear as we're talking about that, that this is a balance of celebrating our sexuality, but celebrating it the way that God designed it to be celebrated. So little cameo. Now we're going to move back to my next point, which is the power of female sexuality. I believe personally that the enemy has been after female sexuality from the very beginning. There is something about femininity that Satan hates with all of his being. And I don't know if it's maybe because of her bringing completion to man's mission or the fact that she is the one who brings life out of her body 
Maybe it's the significance of her sexuality blending with man's and perfect marital unity. I don't know what it is, but I'm not surprised to see so many women struggling with sexual bondage. The enemy is constantly telling us lies about sex. Sexual sin is a man's problem. You're a freak because you struggle with it. You can't talk about your sexual issues. God doesn't forgive sexual sin. Your virginity is the sum of your identity. Good men don't want damaged goods. If you've sinned sexually, you can't have a godly marriage or a good sex life. Sex is a duty women fulfill for their husbands. These are lies, and they drive us away from God and from the sexual freedom he offers, and they drive us toward shame and further enslavement. Many women don't understand the nature of their sexuality enough to fight and win in these areas. Most of us are actually in the business of sin management. And when I was struggling in the midst of my own addiction, I often compared it to the game of whack-a-mole because that's how it felt. Like one day I would have victory and the next day I would fall. And then the next day I'd have victory and then something else would pop up over here. And I was constantly trying to manage my own sinfulness, suppress my desires, try to squash them, set up new standards, make new rules and check things off on a calendar to see how long I could go without sinning. It was a very frustrating and exhausting way to live. And I just felt so divided so hollow. I had no energy to live out my faith for other people because I was so busy managing my own sinfulness. But recognizing that the enemy wanted this, he wanted to destroy my sexuality, my God-designed, God-given sexuality, this gave me more perspective. But what ultimately brought me victory was realizing my sexuality was never the problem. My spirituality was. See, the state of our spiritual lives has a direct connection to our sexual behavior. And if we want to overcome sexual sin, if we want freedom and we want peace over our sexual pasts, we have to fight spiritually first. Sexual struggles are not about sex. They're not about your body. They are about your spirit. And until we fight back spiritually, we can never gain victory sexually. It is our soul that's under attack here. The enemy is wanting to defeat us in a spiritual sense because remember, Christ already won the war, but we're still fighting this battle on this earth until he fully redeems it. We are redeemed in him, but the earth is still fallen and the enemy is still here. And so he wants us to be ineffectual. He wants us to not be able to accomplish God's purposes and to know him and be at peace with him. So he wants to enslave us sexually and deceive us spiritually. Now, here's the irony. If you have a legalistic background, the solution is often create more rules. Don't go dancing. Don't watch certain movies. Don't go out past 10. Don't go to your boyfriend's apartment. Don't be in the car together. Don't kiss until you're married. You can set up every single rule you want, but if your heart does not want to obey Christ, my friend, you'll blow through every single one of those regulations. You'll find a way. Josh and I often talk about the commitment we made to not kiss until we were married. We don't regret that commitment. We think it it did help some, 
but we still have regrets from when we were dating where we did things that we do believe were inappropriate and we weren't even kissing. You can find a way to get around your own rules if your heart is bent on getting what you want and not honoring God and not honoring his design for sexuality. That said, what does God actually say about sex? We know all the lies, but what does he actually say about sexuality? We actually have a pretty good picture of what he wants. And we have to remember that the Bible doesn't often list things out, especially in the Old Testament. You're looking at a narrative and we're pulling theological principles out of the narrative. One of the things I get asked about a lot regarding sex and sexuality is, well, the Old Testament's got polygamy. It's got stories like Tamar and Dinah. The Bible's endorsing these things. No, the Bible's not endorsing them. The Bible's depicting a historic account. It's not commenting on what happened. It's depicting what happened. It's a narrative. And so the Bible's not saying polygamy was right. It's not saying that what happened to Tamar was okay or what happened to Dinah. In fact, when you step back from the situation and you look at it, the fact that they don't comment on it makes the horrifying nature of Dinah's rape, of um, Tamar's situation with Judah, even more sad and more graphic. And it just clarifies to us the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of humanity and their sexuality when they aren't walking according to God's design. So the first time we see sex pictured in scripture is in Genesis 4.1. And the writer of Genesis used the Hebrew word yada, which means to know, saying Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So yada is consistently used in the Old Testament in reference to covenant relationship. Marriage and the sexual relationship within marriage is the most glorious example of the intimate relationship God desires with mankind. So this covenant, it's based on commitment, faithfulness, mutual love, and complete vulnerability. In Proverbs, Proverbs 5, we see an example of illicit sex, so the opposite of Yadah, and marital sex side by side which I think really illustrates how different these two things are. And it says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. We see words like scattered, streets, strangers. This is a life described of a sexual nomad, never committing to the beauty of God-designed love. But in contrast, we see that in godly sexuality, there is this reservoir of satisfaction, this renewal, a continual fountain instead of the dark and empty streets of a city. I'm not saying and this is, this is a lie that's often propagated by purity culture. If you wait and you save sex for marriage, you're promised a great sex life. No, Josh and I had to go through a lot of healing and a lot of processing through our own pasts in order to get to a point where we were communicating well about intimacy and marriage. 
It's not automatic. You can have physical conditions that can make it difficult. You can have a baby and that alters your hormones. There's a lot that can happen. But here's the thing. Sex is a covenantal act. And what do we know about covenant? It's about faithfulness. It's about showing up and and still being there for someone, even when you don't feel like it, even when you aren't feeling like working through something, the covenant keeps you there. I'm not saying you always have sex and you don't feel like it with your spouse. What I'm saying is you work through it. You communicate about it. You are in counseling about it if needed. This is something good sexuality, godly sexuality in a fallen world is going to take work. But that work results in something so beautiful and so long lasting and so rich that nothing in the world can compare to it. I think all of us have been at a women's conference where we were told, you are a beautiful daughter of the Most High King. And it's true, but it's not the whole truth. The beauty of being God's daughter has some backstory and it's left out in a lot of messages preached to women. So if you're tired of hearing the watered down Christian teaching and you're hungry for a deeper spiritual life, I have something for you. Coming so soon with a launch date of February 18th is my brand new book, Stop Calling Me Beautiful, Finding Soul Deep Strength in a Skin Deep World. Stop Calling Me Beautiful is a book about going deeper with God. I'm going to talk about pursuing the truth of who God is and who we are in relationship to him, how to study scripture, how legalism, shallow theology, and false teaching keep us from living boldly as a woman of the word. I'm so excited to put this book in your hands. If you're ready to pre-order, you can grab your copy on Amazon or for more information, head to my website, FeliciaMasonheimer.com and click the book tab. So when we look at sex through God's eyes, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we looking at sex the way God wants us to look at it? Are we looking at it as exciting and fun and beautiful and intimate and hot with your husband? You know, these are all things you get to do. You get to be excited about sex and marriage. You get to be positive about it. I love lingerie showers. They're like favorite thing to attend. And it's so fun to celebrate that this couple gets to do this together. This is so intimate and so amazing that they get to celebrate each other this way. Do you think about sex that way? Or do you look at it as gross, evil, bad, or dutiful? Is that a carryover from your legalistic past? Is it a carryover from your addiction to sexual sin or something that you saw in porn or in a book that you read? God is the one who celebrates sexuality and the enemy has been twisting God's purpose for sex since the very beginning. We get to change this story. We get to change the narrative around sexuality for ourselves. We get to walk out his redemption of our broken sexuality and not live the way that the world tells us sex is supposed to be lived. I want to add a quick note about the difference between lust and desire. So when we're talking about sexuality and legalism and the response to legalism, that pendulum swing that we discussed earlier, we can tend to demonize all desire as if it's all lust when in fact you, women, 
married or single, were given sexual desires by God as a way to embrace this in marriage. And that means that you're going to have those desires and feelings before marriage too. So this being the case, the church has at times almost banned any discussion of desire and labeled all of it lust. And then when you get married, you just flip this switch and suddenly it's godly desire. And that's not, that's not a way we should be looking at this. God gave you the desire. The desire for intimacy, even the physical desire, is, is something he made for your enjoyment. But it has to be used appropriately. It's just like our desires for food. It has to be stewarded appropriately, not abused. And so our job is to submit that desire to the Lord, to remember that he is going to guide us by his Holy Spirit into a holy sexuality. So what's the difference, though, between lust and desire? Four things I want you to know about lust from Scripture. The lust of the flesh belongs to the world, 1 John 2.16. Lust limits our ability to fight against sin, 2 Timothy 2. Lust wages war against our souls, 1 Peter 2. And lustful minds conform us to the world, Romans 12, 2. So if we're to fulfill God's will, which is for us to be holy, 1 Thessalonians 4, these fruits of lust cannot be found in our lives. Jesus said, only the pure in heart can see God, Matthew 5, 8. So our separation from the world when we follow Christ results in a new identity, we're new in Christ, and now our choice is to live up to that identity in Christ or to go back to our old ways. So we have to acknowledge what lust is actually doing to us and then know the difference between that and desire. So lust, this was helpful to me when I was talking about this and studying this when I was struggling. Lust is an almost obsessive attention on attaining something. It's not patient. It's not willing to give up its rights. It's focused on the desire more than the consequences of the desire. But in contrast, a godly sexual desire honors itself and it honors others. It has dignity. The desire is recognized even embraced and celebrated. You can thank God. Thank you, God. Thank you that you gave this to me. And this is an ability that I have, but it's not acted on until the appropriate time. It is characterized by love. That's in 1 Corinthians 13. We see what love looks like. So lust wants to satisfy itself first. And the funny thing is lust confuses desire with need. Lust says, I need this now. And so I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to get it no matter how I have to get it. Whereas a godly desire will recognize that I long for this. God designed this, but he's going to help me wait on this. So the most concerning and final thing I want to say about lust is that it actually usurps God's authority. So when we choose to lust after someone, whether that's in porn or erotica or your boyfriend. And then we act on that. This is an unspoken belief in my own sovereignty. It's saying, I am God of this area of my life. I write my own sexual ethic. I will dictate the limit. I will dictate the limits of my own sexuality. 
So we're technically elevating ourselves above God's standard of holiness. And this is something I was extremely conscious of when I was struggling with sexual sin. I knew what I was doing. I knew it was wrong. The question then was, what do I do now? I was believing lies like, you've already gone too far. You can't go back. God won't forgive repeated sin. You're too much of a hypocrite for anyone to ever want you. And these lies just made me turn back to my sin over and over and over again because I felt like it's a lost cause. Why try? Why even bother anymore? So to get out of this pit, out of this pattern, to truly allow God to redeem our broken sexuality and to live in victory, here's the key. It sounds simple, but it's very hard. Accepting God's love accepting God's love. So this was a foreign concept to me, especially in the depths of my sin and struggle. I knew that God loved me. I thought I loved him, sort of. But once I studied what love looked like in the Bible, I realized the depth of what this is and how this affects the Christian sexual ethic. In order to love others, and I guess you could say to love myself in a godly way, to treat my sexuality with dignity, I had to love God first and foremost. I had to understand what love means to him. And here are a few verses I wanted to share with you about this, about how he loves you. Isaiah 49, 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion for the child she has born, though she may forget I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We see God telling husbands in marriage to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. God's love will make you holy. The world's love, their idea of what it is, might temporarily satisfy you or numb you, but it can't present you to God unashamed. The shame will linger, but God's love, truly understanding and embracing God's love, saying, I believe you. I, first John four, I believe says we have known and believed the love he has for us. You can know it, but not believe it. You can know it, but not believe it. You have to know and believe God's love for you. And this is hard for those who are trapped in sexual sin. We are conscious of our wrongdoing and we have a hard time comprehending anything but God's judgment toward us. But Christ took that condemnation on the cross and this includes the condemnation of sexual sin. So until you embrace God's love for you through Christ, accept it, believe it, trust it, live in it, you will not be free. I want you to be free. I want you to be able to proclaim a redeemed sexuality the way I can in the book, in this podcast, on my blog. I am very open about my story now, and it was so hard at the very beginning. It was so hard, and I don't think everyone's meant to share this publicly. I, I think for you, it just might be one or two people eventually down the road, but right now, 
if you are someone who's struggling with a broken sexuality, do a study of God's love in the word, his love for you, why he died for you. He died to make you holy. You can't earn that holiness, but you can embrace his love, believe his love, and let it bring you into a holy sexuality, the kind that's worth celebrating and being excited about. Sex positive, if you want to say it that way. Sex positive is the biblical sexual ethic. Sex that's celebrated because it's done in a way that preserves intimacy and dignity and honors you and honors the world that you're in. I think we can only find hope and restoration within Christianity when it comes to sex. Everywhere else, we're either told to hide our sexuality or display it to everyone. And God, he takes our broken sexuality and he reshapes it. He makes it something completely new. He buys back. It makes me cry, you guys. He buys back what was given away. And he clothes us with garments of salvation and wraps us with a robe of righteousness. That's Isaiah 61.10. And this is the promise that is for everyone who's in Christ. No matter what they've done. No matter where they've been. And the answer isn't to strip them more bare and to say that that is strength or to display their sexuality on a stage and claim that that's freedom. Instead, it's to actually be made whole, to be truly confident, so confident that you can actually walk out your sexuality without being afraid of it and without being burdened by it and instead enjoying it in marriage when it happens or if it's already happened to you. Celebration of our sexuality requires a daily walk with the Holy Spirit. And as you embrace God's love, your desire for sex, if you're single, it's probably not going to go away, but it can be used as a testament to God's power in you. When you desire sex, you aren't desiring something wrong. You're desiring something God designed. And you can celebrate with him when you use that desire to pour out your heart to God and invite his presence and power over your sexuality. Your desire for sex can be one of the greatest faith walks of your life and can be a testimony to everyone around you. And for those who are married, your healthy sexuality with your spouse is just as much a testimony to the small circle of people who hear about it from you, who you can talk with, the struggling marriages that I have been able to speak into and share our own story with because we have walked this journey with the Lord. We are sexual beings before and after marriage. That's just fact. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the sooner we will live out God's sexual freedom because sexuality has kingdom purpose. Your sexuality has kingdom purpose and God is going to redeem it and make it something so powerful and beautiful. Why do you think the enemy's after it? Because it has so much power, so much power to be a witness, so much power to show the world a genuine confidence and trust in Christ's intentions. Redemption is as simple as letting Jesus retell your story in gospel terms. 
It's as simple as living up to the identity Christ gave you. It's experiencing real sexual healing, undeserved and complete. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Verity. You can connect with fellow listeners by following me on Instagram at Felicia Masonheimer or on our Facebook page by the same name. Also visit FeliciaMasonheimer.com for links to each episode and the show notes. 